It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. A lot going on. We got a shooting situation over in Maine, Lewiston, Maine. For the longest time, you thought Lewiston, Maine. You think Ali Liston, controversial ending to the fight, then did Lewis take a uh, the dive? Now the bigger story is who is this uh, military veteran uh, who lost his mind and started killing people, uh, wounded about 30, killed 22, and still on the loose. We'll cover that. We're also going to talk to uh, Ambassador David Friedman about a moment, former U.S. Ambassador to Israel, just got back from uh, that country. And now Dave Ignatius of the Washington Post has tapped in as anybody Uh, What's going on, especially in the Middle East. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This body of lawmakers is reporting again to our duty stations. Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The People's House is back in business. We got a speaker. His name is Mike Johnson. It's over and kind of just beginning. Johnson is new Speaker of the House, and now he must move like a house on fire to avoid a government shutdown, analyze and perhaps ex- expedite emergency aid to the border. Israel, and dare I say Ukraine? Let's see if the new Speaker can handle some of the old Speaker unity issues. Number two. I Williams think these kids slaughtered- at the colleges have for brains. Yeah, we have one reliable ally in the Middle East. That's Israel. I've given to Colombia probably about $50 million over many years. And I'm going to suspend my giving. I'll give my giving to other organizations. You should, Leon Cooperman, uh, you hedge fund billionaire uh, and a Columbia School graduate. Disturbing pro-Hamas and Palestinian protests surge onto New York City streets and to city streets. Anti-Semitism, anti-Israeli hate emerges. Where did this all come from and how does it end? Number one. We are preparing the ground operation and uh, we will launch the ground operation. We have no other choice because if you want to defeat Hamas, you cannot just do it just from the air. You have to go in and defeat them. Yes, uh, Michael Herzog, U.S. Israeli ambassador to the United States, probing, not invading. That's what the IDF is doing while Hezbollah, Hamas and Iran make it clear they are all in this together. They actually met in front of the cameras together. What will it take for this administration to unleash on Israel, uh, unleash Israel and respond to the attacks from the Iranian-affiliated militias. Let's bring Ambassador David Friedman, who is kind of doing all the work that because we did not have an ambassador to Israel for the Biden administration. He was trying to help the best he can uh, on October 7th and beyond after that horrific hit. Ambassador, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. Good to be back with you again. Am- ambassador, if I told you... Uh, October 8th, that it would be uh, 19 days and there would no be no ground invasion return. Would you have said, Brian, that's impossible? I would have thought it was impossible. I think that was the sentiment, certainly on the 7th, the 8th, the 9th. Um, I, I think the magnitude of the hostage taking has sobered everybody a little bit. I mean, 220 now uh, being held hostage under you know, unthinkable conditions. You know, the Israeli people, it's a small country. Everybody knows everybody. Uh, the, the People are going to sleep at night if they can sleep at all. They're thinking about what these people are going through. And so I, I think there is a, you know, there is a, a mandate to, to free them if it's possible. Again, it's 
it's got to be conducted simultaneously, really, with the war effort. And I think the war effort's going to get started pretty soon. I mean, we're going to give, I guess, they're going to give Cutter a chance to see what they can, what they can deliver. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sensing that it's now imminent. You know, as, as you pointed out, I mean, they went in last night uh, into Gaza, a smaller group. They're starting to really, I think, cloud the fields there. And uh, I think we'll see it. We'll see it come soon. Ambassador, the Wall Street Journal reports that Israel has agreed to a U.S. request to delay the invasion. Uh, they say because the U.S. said we want to get our uh, before you guys invade, we want to get our missile defense systems together to guard our troops. Two thousand five hundred in Iraq and about nine hundred in Syria. What do you think? What about the validity of that story? You know, I just uh, I, I I don't know. I, I I don't understand why we would have twenty five hundred troops. In, in Iraq and 900 in Syria without those protections already. Yes. It's a very dangerous place. I mean, I don't know why we're, you know, so that doesn't really ring true to me. But again, if we don't have them there, we ought to get them there like yesterday. So I, I certainly think that's uh, that's that's a legitimate request if it hasn't been done. Why it hasn't been done, I don't know. What I, what I don't uh, understand is why we have not hit back when we've been hit 14 times, targeted 14 times by these Iranian-affiliated militias, in uh, in Iraq and Syria, how much how damaging is to our reputation to not answer these hits? I think it's devastating. I think it's devastating to to sit there and take it. And, and, and I'll give you an easier one because you know even if and I I agree with you, we should have uh, responded in kind immediately. With hours, we should have responded. But how about sanctions? Let's just talk about sanctions. You know, um, the uh, the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. There's nobody that wants to be boxed out of the uh, U.S. financial systems. And Iran is now selling oil uh, at, at a rate which is 10 times the level of what it was in the last year of the Trump administration. You know, just reimpose massive sanctions, bankrupt the country. We can do that. We can impose secondary sanctions. That makes it impossible for anybody else to deal with Iran without getting boxed out of our financial system. You know, we, we still have a massively stronger economy than anyone else in the world by far. And we can flex that power you know, without starting, you know, you want to say I'm, I'm concerned about retaliation? Fine. Just start with the sanctions. I mean, we haven't um, imposed, you know, sanctions of the type we can impose in three years. We let we made Iran a very rich country again. You know, the game plan is pretty clear, Hamas. This is they call themselves the axis of resistance. They took those militias. Uh, they combined them together. There were Hezbollah and Hamas had a meeting in, in front of the cameras yesterday. They're targeting population centers, conducting an information operation to erode the will of Israel's political establishment. Uh, they want the Palestinian militias uh, t- together to try to drive unrest in the West Bank, which is working. And the axis of resistance harassing IDF forces with indirect and direct fire, which we're seeing pretty much in the north. So they seem to have a battle plan. Yeah, they do. They have a battle plan. And I'll tell you what else they're doing, which, you know, I think people need to look at a lot more carefully. You know, in, in the aftermath of, uh, of, the, of the, the George Floyd murder, when, when BLM and Black Lives Matter became this dominant, you know, pol- you know, social political force in America, all of a sudden, you know, BLM is, is shouting out, you know, free Palestine. Now, what in the world does BLM have to do with free Palestine? It's not their issue. How did it become their issue? I think we're going to find that if we just scratch the surface, a massive investment, you know, in BLM by the um, by the by the pro Hamas movement. I think they bought because they saw there, they saw you know, kind of ad space, they saw advertising space, you know, that that they could use very effectively. And we're seeing it right now. All the all the people that you know all around the country that were advocating for uh, for BLM, they're now 
they've, they've, they've been activated and they're pushing now for this, you know, bar, barbaric movement in Hamas. It's not because they ideologically they're aligned. It's because they're financially aligned. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that nobody's looked at it. I, I'm, I'm aware of, of major donations from, uh, from you know, the, the far progressive left that, that only really care about, about Hamas that are funding these movements. How does it relate to the college kids protesting on campus? Where, where does that come from? Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's so many, you know, sins, you know, kind of, you know, becoming actualized right now. I mean, look, it's, it's the whole movement on college campuses to, to bring in ideologues. You know, not to bring in, you know, people who are engaged in rigorous, you know, academic research and analysis. It's just they want to bring in Ivy Lux. I don't know why. Where You know, every, you know, the, the Ivy League is, you know, it's, as I say, it's poison Ivy now. They've, they've poisoned the minds of, of people who I think otherwise, you know, had reasonably high IQs mm-hmm. and, could, and they're the, you know, could be the future leaders of our country. But it's gone so awry, um, all because of this, uh, you know, need to, advance a progressive ideologically. Look, you cannot be a pro-Israel professor on a college campus and get here. You just can't. You know, just 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 go from place to place to place. Find me a pro-Israel professor who's gotten tenure. Can't can't be done. And and, and now all these sins are now we're we're now seeing the results of these sins. I I did not know there was a metrics to measure that. I would not think that would do to eliminate anyone uh if you were pro-Israel or not. If I'm teaching Middle East uh, a course in Middle East peace or Middle East history of Middle East. Why does it matter from pro-Israel or anti-Israel? Just tell the story accurately, listen, right? Listen, Columbia University, as you know, is my alma mater. It began with a guy named Edward Said. About when I was in college, I took this course. It was pretty, it was pretty horrible. And and his his legacy was passed on to a guy named Joseph Mossad, who's now a full professor at Columbia. And as soon as Hamas began, you know, murdering and raping and dismembering and kidnapping. You know, he came down on their side. This is a full tenured professor at Columbia who is who is defending Hamas. Okay, you know, I I signed a petition. You know, uh, once I got got behind it, it got about sixty seventy thousand signatures at Columbia to fire this guy. They're not going to fire him. They're standing behind him. You know, uh, absolutely one hundred percent. So yeah, look, and, and and nobody can take the opposing view because there's nobody there. There's nobody on campus who is in a position of, of leadership who can take an opposing view. This this is and this is being replicated throughout the best universities in the country. Um, I look what David Mamet said yesterday. If your kids, when your kids come home from Thanksgiving, don't send them back. Uh, <laughs> Leon Cooperman, yeah. this hedge fund billionaire you might know, Columbia graduate. Yeah, of course. This, this is what he said yesterday, cut 15. I think these kids at the colleges have for brains. Here we have one reliable ally in the Middle East, that's Israel. We only have uh, one democracy in the Middle East, that's Israel. Okay, and we have one economy tolerant of different people, you know, gays, lesbians, etc. And that's Israel. So they have no idea what these young kids are doing. He went on to say this is what his actions will be. Cut 16. Now, the real shame is I've given to Columbia probably about 50 million dollars over many years. And I'm going to suspend my giving. I'll give my giving to other organizations. But I told them that they should fire this professor that made the comments he made. I mean, war is hell. It's, war is not good for anybody. But to praise what Hamas did is disgraceful. Sounds like you, and he's taking action. Yeah, I only, I only wish I had $50 million to give. But uh, <laughs> short, of that, short of that, it's very similar. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So uh, this, now all of a sudden President Biden is saying, 
Two-state solution, two-state solution, two-state solution. And Hamas doesn't represent the Palestinians. Listen to him yesterday. Cut three. We also have to remember that Hamas does not represent, let me say it again, Hamas does not represent the vast majority of the Palestinian people on the Gaza Strip or anywhere else. Hamas is hiding behind Palestinian civilians and is despicable and not surprisingly cowardly. You know that you know the area you worked there for four years for President Trump. Tell me the truth. Where the Palestinians stand with Hamas? Uh, Lockstep, lockstep. They they're celebrating every dead baby. They're celebrating every raped woman. Uh, Look, um, I, I agree that Hamas does not represent the best interests of the Palestinians, but they do represent the Palestinian sentiment. I mean. Listen, they're celebrating all these attacks. And uh, look, you know, maybe, you know, when, when these when these poor kids were born, you know, they were they were they, they didn't hate anybody, but they've been taught to hate. They've been taught to hate, by the way, with American dollars that supports UNRWA. I mean, Brian, you know, there's not a single Palestinian leader in the Middle East who's standing up against Hamas. Not one. When he talks about a two state solution with who? Yeah. Who's going to run? Who's going to run the states? I mean, they're all going to be terrorists. It's, I mean, and by the way, just to make it clear, not only is Israel opposed to a Palestinian state run by terrorists. You know, if you ask them candidly behind the cameras, you know, uh, so is Jordan, so is Egypt, so are people in the Gulf. Nobody wants a terrorist state smack in the middle of uh, between Israel and Jordan. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a platitude. You know, it's, it's kind of a throwaway to the, to the left. But there is no one on the other side to create a Palestinian state, if, even if you wanted to. And I wouldn't do it anyway. I mean, why bother? I mean, the, these... These Palestinian states, Jordan is a Palestinian state. The majority of the people living in Jordan are Palestinian, right? Nobody, nobody seems to care that Jordan is majority Palestinian, but it lives in a dictatorship run by a Hashemite king. Uh, nobody cares about that. You know, it's only when the Jews are, are in control that it seems to matter. But in any event, you know, Jordan is a failed country. It has a, a GDP per capita of about, you know, about $10,000. Uh, Israeli Arabs are living in a place where the GDP per capita is $50,000. So why would anybody want to be part of a Palestinian state? It doesn't work. You know, make peace with Israel. Make peace with Israel and prosper. I'm just saying that that's going to be the new uh, buzz term. Two-state solution. We got to get the Palestinian people just need an opportunity. Hamas has got got control. Name one Palestinian leader that stepped up after the death of Yasser Arafat. We got Mahmoud Abbas, who is an absolute loser of an individual, a corrupt 82-year-old elderly man who's got no power and 14 percent approval. So listen, yep. to, and yeah, Holocaust denier too. So Queen Reina of Jordan, big, uh, uh, very anti-Israel, it seems, uh, Abdullah's wife, cut 18. In the last couple of weeks, we have seen, you know, a glaring double standard uh, in the world. When October 7th happened, the world immediately and unequivocally uh, stood by Israel and uh, its right to defend itself and condemned uh, the attacks that happened. But when we, what we're seeing the last couple of weeks, we have, we're seeing silence in the world. Um, you know, the countries have stopped just expressing concern or acknowledging the casualties, but always with a preface of declaration of support uh, for Israel. I don't know what, what planet she's on, but almost the whole Middle East is condemning Israel. It's now the latest one is Turkey. What's your thoughts about her? Uh, you know what? First of all, Jordan hasn't agreed to let in a single Palestinian refugee. Even as I said, a majority of their population are Palestinians. Um, you know, the, 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 you know, Israel has Palestinian citizens and Jordan has Palestinian citizens. And the Palestinian citizens living in Israel uh, have an average income about five times that in Jordan. Okay. And, and her husband, who runs Jordan, okay, 
he, he doesn't let the, the, the three million Palestinians, they don't vote in elections. It's all, it's all you know, they, they have a, a Congress that the king picks every single member. So, you know, it's, the hypocrisy is kind of extraordinary here. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough neighborhood, Ambassador. It's amazing how many people who never went there are experts at it. Uh, yeah. You have family there. You've lived there. You work there. And now you're here. Ambassador David Friedman, thank you. Thanks, Brian. One eight, you got it. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. What I saw earlier waiting to be on air, seeing that uh, people from Colombia were happy on what happened on, on the 7th of October just, you know, breaks my heart and makes me so furious because I am also an American citizen and I'm also supposed to be safe in America. This is also my home. And to, to allow people in, in elite colleges to be happy of someone's kidnapping and someone's being slaughtered and someone being butchered and, and innocent babies being killed inside a woman's womb that is just morally wrong, and I feel like it's a responsibility of our educational colleges and universities to say enough. Exactly. That's Maya Pariser. She's a survivor of that Supernova musical festival where over 200 people lost their lives in the most brutal way possible. You know, some of them ran into safe houses, thought they were safe, and they found they, they caught up with them. They did their surveillance, would roll grenades in and just blow them to pieces. In fact, I saw one guy who, uh, on another channel... A video, uh, he kept rolling back the uh, the grenade, and he rolled it back, and it blew up. It blew his most of his arm off. They grabbed him, were throwing on the back of a pickup truck, and then can you imagine seeing that, visualizing it, wondering where your friends, literally your friends are, twenty somethings, and then seeing twenty somethings in the street protesting against Israel for Hamas, and you got to say to yourself, what country am I in again? Is this a bad movie? But that's what's going on, not just in New York City, but but around the country. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If there is an opportunity to release more hostages, then we'll give that opportunity and some other related issues. The U.S. does not tell us whether to go in or not to go in. Israel is a sovereign state and takes its own sovereign decisions. We have very close discussions with the U.S. administration about related considerations, and they raise questions and concerns, but no one tells us what to do. And as I said, we are preparing the ground operation, and uh, we are about to launch it. That is uh, Michael Herzog. He's the Israeli ambassador to the U.S., uh, saying that Israel's calling their own shots. And those stories about uh, President Biden saying, wait it out, get the hostages out, uh, plan it out, are not true. Dave Ignatius, Washington Post columnist, has his own great sources and is kind enough to join us now. David, uh, thanks so much for being here. I know this is a tumultuous time for you uh, as well. You know all the players. Is he right? Is, uh, Is Israel calling their own shots? 
Uh, Brian, what uh, Ambassador Herzog said is obviously right. In the end, Israel reserves, as any country does, the right to make its own decisions, especially about security matters like this. It's also true that there has been intense uh, consultation between the U.S. and Israel. The United States is the crucial uh, second line of defense for Israel. We've moved two aircraft carrier task forces. We've shot down uh, missiles that were aimed at Israel, uh, fired from Yemen. Uh, you know, we're, we're close to being in this. So Israel listens carefully to what uh, the advice is from the U.S. side. And there is concern in the U.S. that Israel not um, react in ways that will make its military and security problems worse better than be- uh, be- uh, instead of better. So, I mean, I, I think that it is true that the consultation is going on, but Ambassador Gonsal is right. In the end, Israel decides what it wants to do, period. So we know about uh, the, the grounding. There was a, a big probe last night, and they just did kill. They announced they killed one of Hamas's higher-ups. Um, but I do want to bring you to this Wall Street Journal story that says Israel has agreed to U.S. request to delay an invasion of Gaza because they want to get their missile defense in order. I just talked to Ambassador Friedman, who was there during the Trump years, just left the country, was there during the attacks. And he said, I'm shocked that we don't have missile defense there already for our 2,500 uh, troops in Iraq and in Syria, 900 over in Syria. Does that sound plausible to you? Do, you? do you buy that story? I know it's not your story, but do you buy this scenario? So I, I, I think the U.S. Uh, has proposed a pause uh, for, for various reasons. One is to get more air defense into the, into the region. Um, we have more forces now. Uh, that are there that are exposed than before. And so be natural to want more air defense to protect them. There is hope that some additional hostages could be released. And I think there's a desire on all sides um, not to disrupt that process, which which obviously Israel would love to see some of those 224 hostages uh, uh, out. Um, and, and and finally, I think your listeners should, should bear in mind there's overwhelming need for air defense in Ukraine. Their biggest problem going into the winter is is the lack of sufficient uh, uh, missiles, uh, air defense systems. So a lot of what the U.S. had hoped to be able to provide to Ukraine, it's now having to think about diverting to protect U.S. forces and to provide Israel uh, for its own its own defense. So it's a complicated situation uh, for, for the Pentagon, getting all these planning streams coordinated. Um, and, and I think for, for many reasons, the Israelis have decided they don't want to rush in. They don't want to rush into having a, a second front with Lebanon. They don't want to rush into Gaza before they really prepare the battle space. What you saw last night, the probe by Israeli tanks, I think we're going to see more of that. They, they want up, they want locate to the extent they possibly can where the Hamas uh, terrorist fighters are. They want to understand the tunnel network as well as they can. They want to minimize the risks once they go in on the ground invasion. No doubt about it. And the guy they killed, uh, Hassan Abdullah, uh, they feel as like, though so he was a high-value target. So uh, there, was a, there was a probe in there. They sent in some tanks. They sent in some units, and they pulled right back out. How do you feel, and it must be surreal to you who know the Middle East so well, David Ignatius, to see Hezbollah meeting openly with Hamas and Iran representatives in Beirut yesterday? Almost they bring in the cameras as if they can spray the room to get the video out there. They're not hiding their alliance. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a photo oppor- opportunity for what they call the, the resistance. Uh, 
in the in the Arab world, uh, to me, really appalling fact is that the Hamas uh, terror attacks across the fence that killed 1,400 Israelis have been greeted uh, by, by a lot of uh, celebration. Uh, and the, the uh, Israeli bombing of, of targets in Gaza has been uh, greeted by, by protest. So they almost want to advertise their alliance. The question, Brian, is whether it goes beyond photo opportunities to not embrace the resistance, as they, as they call each other, um, to actual fighting. And the, the signs have been so far that while Hezbollah wants to make a show of support, fire some rockets across the, the border, it's not prepared for a full-scale uh, war, nor is Iran. Uh, everything I hear from U.S. and Israeli officials tells me that that's their reading. But they were wrong about Hamas. They didn't think Hamas would attack across the fence. They thought Hamas was deterred. It wasn't. So they're really scared of making the same mistake twice. So the big question is, and you write about this, what happens the next day? You go in and you rid the place of every Hamas agent you can find, and they're gone for now. Everyone knows, logically, we saw it with Al-Qaeda, ISIS, they'll, they'll pop back up, but at what level? So what happens the next day? Nobody wants Gaza. Jordan doesn't want it. The Israelis don't want it. Who gets Gaza? So that that's the core problem, and I think... You and your listeners know that for the United States and our basically frustrating wars over 20 years in the Middle East, one problem is we didn't think enough about the day after. I mean, our army is the strongest in the world overwhelming. We can blow through anything. But what then? And Israel has some of the same problems to think about. It does not want to reoccupy Gaza. It wants somebody to take responsibility for security there. That's not Hamas. But who is that? And there's a lot of discussion. I met with some Arab leaders in Washington last night just to talk over that issue. What force might go into Gaza after the military operations are concluded to stabilize things? How would that work? Would it be an international force? Would, would the U.S. take part in some way? Would the Palestinian Authority, which rules the West Bank, it is unreliable, but it isn't as bad as Hamas. Would they go in? So those are all the issues that, that, that people are discussing. They don't have answers. It's one reason I think the Israelis are being careful and not launching a, a, a full ground offensive before they know what would go in place once it was done. One thing is clear. Remember they told us about the, the caves and bin Laden and he has all these tunnels in these caves, and that was overstated. I don't think that's the case with Gaza. It's these, these, these tunnels seem real. And when those hostages came out, uh, that 85-year-old woman came out and talked about it was a spider web of caves down there, um, and she got medical attention. There is an there's a underground world the Israelis are going to have to fight in. Is, is that true? Yes, you put it exactly right. Sometimes people in Gaza call it the metro. There's so many tunnels that it's said it add them all up. It's hundreds of miles of tunnels. They've been working on them for 15 years. They're very sophisticated. They built them carefully. And it makes this conflict extremely difficult to plan. The Israelis, in the, in the two-plus weeks that they've been waiting, have been using all kinds of exotic sensors, new technologies, you know, things we don't know about, to, to try to ascertain to the extent they can um, a map of these of these tunnels. Where are people? Where are the hostages? Where are the fighters? 
uh, you know, one of the booby traps, and they've been using every bit of technology they can and go into these tunnels to some extent with robots and drones. Mm-hmm. You can fly drones in the tunnels. You can send robots down. But at some point, you've got to send human beings to clean them up. And it's a nightmare of warfare. There's a special unit of the Israeli, the IDF, the Israeli military, uh, known as Summer, which translate as, translates as weasels. These are the guys who go underground. They're incredibly tough. Uh, super brave, but but in the next couple of weeks, uh, pay attention to the news reports about about these Israeli fighters operating underground in this tunnel network because they will be the toughest toughest guys uh, uh, in the Israeli military. The Washington Post, David Ignatius, with us. David's day nineteen. The official number of Israelis killed on on the seventh, eleven hundred and six, seven hundred ninety eight civilians, three hundred eight soldiers, and and fifteen percent are unidentified means there's a lot of people there that were so mutilated, so destroyed, uh, that we can't make out their identification yet. That's why we, it's hard to get an idea of how many hostages. But I think the number's up to 224 now, even with the release of four. So we'll see where this goes. How do you feel, David, about the fact that our troops have been attacked by these Iranian-affiliated militias anywhere from 11 to 14 times since the 7th, and we have not attacked back in that rough neighborhood they look at that as weakness. So what you know from the fact of those attacks, or let's say it's 13 attacks on, on U.S. positions, uh, roughly 24 U.S. service people injured. What you know is that these Iranian-backed militias are not deterred. They don't yet feel that they'll pay a price. And so the attacks are going to continue or increase until they they know that they'll they'll pay a price for them. So I'm I'm certain that there'll be U.S. retaliation. Again, as with Israel, you don't want to jump into things before you have a clear sense of of how right. each chain uh, in, in link in this chain is going to, is going to go. So I you know I, I think I, mean, I, know, I know the CENTCOM commander General Carilla, He's smart. He's tough. Uh, but so he'll he'll take action, but I, I don't blame him for, right. for taking his time to think exactly how to do it. See, see, I don't think it applies here because they've been there. They know the neighborhood. They know who the actors are. These aren't newly created actors. The alliance might be somewhat nil, but you know who's financing it and pushing it. My feeling is we could have the best commanders, but if the State Department slash White House says don't do it, they can't act in their best interests or in our best interests or with all their knowledge and experience. I, I just can't tell you whether there's been a, an order from the, from the White House to, to delay plans that General Carrillo has already already I don't have that information. I, I think you're right that they always have uh, good contingency plans to, to respond to attacks like these. I've been uh, with uh, CENTCOM commanders at some of these places. I was at Al Assad Air Base when there were, there were threats of attacks. I've been in other places that have been attacked. Um, you know, the, the, our, our forces out there are vulnerable all the time. This this uh, threat includes our embassy in, in in Baghdad, which has been evacuated out of the, the most limited group of personnel necessary. Same thing with our consulate in Erbil and in, in in Iraqi Kurdistan. So we're hunkered down, knowing that our forces are our forces and diplomats are subject to attack. We're going to have to push back. I, I think your point is exactly right. Just the question is when and how. So um, here's the president yesterday at his uh, rare press conference, cut five. It also means that when this crisis is over, there has to be a vision of what comes next. And in our view, it has to be a two-state solution. It means 
a concentrated effort from all the parties, Israelis, Palestinians, regional partners, global leaders, to put us on a path toward peace. David, is the two-state solution even worth even bringing up? I don't. Where's the Palestinian partner and the passion for the Middle East neighbors to get involved? Nobody, nobody really wants Hamas in charge, but there's nobody emerging that would be in charge that would be palatable for the Israelis or for anybody else. So one, you know, there are a couple of questions. Uh, one is um, who's going to be uh, in charge of Israel going forward? I think there is widespread criticism of, of Prime Minister Netanyahu for the chain of events that led to these terrible attacks on October 7th. Will he continue on the long run? The Prime Minister don't know. It, it could be that there'll be a government that's more sympathetic to the idea of, of, a, of a two-state solution. The Arabs are trying to get their act together on this. I mean, the, they believe, as does the United States government, as has the U.S. government, you know, for as long as I can remember, that stability and security for Israel in the long run will be enhanced by having a Palestinian state that's demilitarized. They want to see that. So they're talking to the Arabs, are talking to Saudi Arabia, to Jordan, to Egypt, to all the Arab countries that we deal with to see if after uh, Hamas is cleared, can there be a hold force in Gaza and eventually a new a new force in the West Bank that's stable, that isn't that, that that doesn't every couple of years launch a new attack that opens a, a new door to greater stability for Israel. And if if the, if they could demonstrate that, I'm sure the Israelis, um, the many Israelis, would want to be to be part of that process. But you know, there's so many ifs in what I said, Brian. Yeah. I'm just telling you that yeah. people are working hard to figure out. Could you get to that place? Because that that place would be better than what Israel's living in now, no question about it. All right. I mean, they have so much money that were flowing into Gaza. If they put it to the right thing, it could be uh, Martha's Vineyard. Uh, I don't know about Martha's Vineyard, but it could be it could be safer and more and more secure for everybody. There's no question. I mean, Palestinians should have a, a better life. Pa- Palestinians in Gaza do not like Hamas. They feel oppressed by Hamas. I, I just quoted in the newspaper dozens of, of, of Palestinians in, in Gaza who hate Hamas. But they, they, there needs to be a very coordinated effort by the U.S., Israel, moderate Arab states to help bring something different into place there. It would be great. Uh, David, if, uh, if it does happen, you'll be the first to get it. David Ignatius, Washington Post. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Great to talk to you. Same here. Uh, back in a moment. We'll go ahead, take your calls. A lot going on. We'll also follow us in the manhunt over in Maine. Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Last thing I'm going to say is a message to the rest of the world. They have been watching this drama play out for a few weeks. We've learned a lot of lessons, but you know what? Through adversity, it makes you stronger. And, yeah. And, and we want our allies around the world to know that this body of lawmakers is reporting again to our duty stations. Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The people's house is back in business. I love uh, uh, Mike Johnson. He's a great guy. He's very conservative, but I don't think it even matters. He's got to go in there. He's got to deal with moderates and purple states, 18 of which won where Joe Biden won. So he's got to go back and make sure that they get their jobs. Even if you don't like them or agree with them, they're Republicans. They can keep you in the majority. And he's got to do two things. He's got to make sure we don't need a, con- a continuing resolution. 
because evidently people like Matt Rosendale can't tolerate that, even though no one's done anything for 22 days. Got to make sure they fund the government. And then what are they going to do about this funding package uh, that has funding for this horrible place called Ukraine? And I think it's a great place, and we got to fund it. we got to be smart about it. got to audit it, but you got to fund it. And you, Taiwan, they want to pay for it. We just can't get it. We want to pay for that emergency. They have money. And then Israel, everyone agrees with that. And the border, but how are they going to spend money on the border? So if he does some things that Kevin McCarthy was going to do, uh, are the crazy eight going to be all over him? Probably. Hey, quick note. Teddy and Booker T come out November 7th. November 9th, I'm going to be in Red Bank, New Jersey at the Vogel. On the 10th, Ponte Vedra in Concert Hall. You, you got it. There's only a few tickets left. Then the Villages, Bureau Beach. And I'll be doing another live show that Brentwood, Tennessee, right after the Patriot Awards. I'll be doing another live show. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moment of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here, 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Yesterday was this big walkout day around the country for college kids to prove their idiocy and go out to bat for Hamas in Palestine, as if it was even a cause before the Israelis suffered that brutal blow that killed uh, over 1,100, including 791 civilians. Now people are actually protesting for the other side. It is insane. Uh, but that's what's happened in Manhattan and Columbia, at Hunter, at NYU, at the new school. And the reason why I bring it up is because it's ha- it might not happen in your small town or it might not happen in, in your small city. Or it might be happening. I'm not saying that New York, the sun uh, rises and sets here. But what I saw here is really disturbing because it's it never fails. Whatever's against America's interest, Americans seem to rally for. The democracy in the Middle East, our number one friend, not good enough for this generation. It's crazy. Elliot Abrams is standing by. Congressman Jason Smith right after that. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This body of lawmakers is reporting again to our duty stations. Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The people's house is back in business. And that is Mike Johnson. Very well spoken speech. They finally have a a unanimous speaker. They got all 220 votes. But I really think it's just beginning. How do you avoid a government shutdown in just a handful of days? How do you go ahead and expedite emergency aid to the border, Israel, and dare I say Ukraine? Good luck with that. Maybe Matt Gates will be unhappy and try to get rid of you, too. Number two. I think these kids at the colleges have for brains. Yeah, we have one reliable ally in the Middle East. That's Israel. I've given to Colombia probably about $50 million over many years. And I'm going to suspend my giving. I'll give my giving to other organizations. Disturbing pro-Hamas Palestinian protests surge in city streets. Anti-Semitism, anti-Israeli hate rages. It's got to stop. Who started it? Number one. We are preparing the ground operation. And uh, we will launch the ground operation. We have no other choice because if you want to defeat Hamas, you can't just do it just from the air. You have to go in and defeat them. Uh, and that is the Israeli ambassador to the U.S., probing but not invading yet. That's what the IDF is doing while Hezbollah, Hamas, and Iran make it clear they are the alliance of resistance. They actually had a, a, a pool spray yesterday in Beirut. What will it take for this administration to unleash Israel and start responding to the attacks on our bases in Iraq and Syria and beyond? 
With me right now is Elliot Abrams, his experience as anyone in the Middle East and around the country and around the world, senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies and the Council on Foreign Relations. He's in Washington. Elliot, welcome back. Uh, Glad to be back, Brian. Good morning. Uh, We have so much to talk about. First off, your perspective on waiting 19 days to go into Gaza. Are you comfortable that this is the Israelis' decision that they're making themselves? I'm comfortable so far. Uh, you know, it, it's a reserve army. They called up 360,000 people. Uh, they've got to get the supplies. They've got to be in the right place. Obviously, they've got to make new plans for Gaza. So I think, you know, waiting a, a couple of weeks is fine. Um, they lose from it in international support, uh, which is, you know, which is fading even before they've gone into Gaza. But uh, so far, my impression is they're making the decisions. That may change next week. The uh, Wall Street Journal says that we asked him to delay to get our missile defense in place in where our assets are, mainly Syria and Iraq. Do you buy that report, and uh, does it sound logical to you? Well, I don't really buy it because I can't see what the president's doing with respect to Iran. I mean— Remember the president's famous word, don't? Uh. You know, my message to Iran and anybody else, don't. And then Secretary of State Blinken said, you know, we will respond if there are any attacks. And a day or two later, there have been 13 attacks. And Americans have been wounded. And the American response has been nothing. Literally nothing. Now, it's good to get air defense in place. But that is not all we should be doing. We need to tell the Iranians frankly, as we did at the end of the Trump administration, uh, if you kill an American, we're not going to attack some, some Iranian proxy group in western Iraq. We're going to hit you. That's the message we should be giving Iran, and they don't believe it right now. Actually, I don't believe it either right now. That's what's got to change. Imagine, Elliot, if you had a kid on that base of 2,500 in Iraq, you know, you're worried enough, and then find out that you have an administration that won't let you defend yourself, or get on the offensive to take out uh, a would-be attacker. They're hitting us with drones and rockets. We know exactly where they came from. You know our satellite capability. We can go right to it and wipe them out ahead of time and send a message, and we're not. And that, to me, shows such weakness, and you are an expert in that area. That's all they understand is strength, correct? That's absolutely right, and that's something the Israelis are dealing with right now. It's International politics is a jungle, but the Middle East is a more dangerous jungle. And you don't survive, uh, as an Israeli prime minister once said, we don't survive by quoting the Psalms. We survive by having the, the strongest army. That's true for us, too, and all of our interests in the Middle East. If Iran thinks that we are afraid of them, And they know that they can keep on killing Americans and attacking Americans, and we're not going to do anything about it. The attacks are just going to keep on coming, and they're going to get worse. But they know we're capable. You know what amazes me? It's in Iran's best best interest for Joe Biden to stay president. But they're going out of their way to make him look so weak, he will not stay president. So do they understand that the next person in is going to whack the hell out of them if it's a Republican because they know what has worked in the past, taking out Soleimani, going back and and damaging their assets, knowing that uh, Saudi Arabia feels the same way about we do about Iran. 
do they not know what's in their interest? I, I'm trying to th- like think, put myself in their shoes. Well, I, your your point is a good one, but apparently not because they they have escalated in the last couple of weeks. Uh, they they don't think they're going to get hurt by attacking Americans, and we've got to we've got to turn that around now. I mean, it's a good thing to turn it around in 2025 after our elections and a new inauguration. But we've got to turn it around now because we've got thousands of Americans at risk in the Middle East. So looking at the president yesterday, he never gives press conferences. Yesterday he did a joint press conference with the Australian leader. And he said, and I'm, not fi- I'm fine with this, what, what happens the next day? All right, what, what do we do? And his, here's what his new focus is, cut five. It also means that when this crisis is over, there has to be a vision of what comes next. And in our view, it has to be a two-state solution. It means a concentrated effort for all the parties, Israelis, Palestinians, regional partners, global leaders, to put us on a path toward peace. Is this the type, is, is the two-state solution the solution? No. Uh, it's crazy to be talking about that right now. I mean, you can mention it, but to think that Israelis are going to come out of this attack, this war, and say, okay, now it's time for the two-state solution, um, is nuts. Two-state solution, sovereign, independent Palestine and the West Bank, means that the West Bank would end up looking like Gaza. It's much too dangerous. You tell me, who's going to keep the peace? Who's going to keep law and order? Who's going to fight terrorism? Who's going to fight Hamas? The minute there's a Palestinian state in the West Bank, Iran will start its activities to turn it into another Gaza. Who's going to prevent that? I think Israelis have learned the lesson the hardest possible way. It's too dangerous. And nobody would okay that. If Mexico was trying to kill us on a daily basis, would we say, okay, that's a perfect time to give them arms? They put up a wall of the West Bank. They got, they got distracted, clearly. And then in Gaza, which they said was a outdoor prison, clearly was not, as bulldozers, uh, uh, hang gliders, and more came in and killed 1,200. Right. But I want you to hear what else the president said. Cut three. We also have to remember that Hamas does not represent, let me say it again, Hamas does not represent the vast majority of the Palestinian people on the Gaza Strip or anywhere else. Hamas is hiding behind Palestinian civilians. Well, they are hiding behind the civilians, but there's no proof in my view that the Palestinians are not represented by Hamas. I think that's right. I mean, I think you put it right. There is no proof. That is, it's, it is possible. It is possible that by now, Palestinians in Gaza hate Hamas and want it gone. It's also possible that that's not true. I mean, they haven't voted in a very long time. And public opinion polls are mixed on what Palestinians want. But to, uh, to say that in a free election they would clearly vote against Hamas, I think there's no proof of that. I wish there were. So you go, you, everybody believes they're going to have to eventually go in. The world sentiment is already yep. changing. Turkey came out and, and Jordan came out and uh, yep. condemned the action so far. There will be civilians dead, and we both know the difference. The difference is that if a civilian dies, that is never the intent with the Israelis ever. But it is the focus and the target for, for Hamas. So people don't see the difference here in America. Did you ever think you'd see people marching for the Palestinians and Hamas in almost every major city? No. 
I mean, it's really amazing. Admittedly, a lot of them are stupid kids, you know, 18 years old. You do, you do have to ask, what are they being taught and what are they learning at those colleges and universities that, that gets them out in the street like that? But, but I want to go back to something you just said. I was in the White House, the Bush administration, in the 2006 Lebanon War. That was Israel against Hezbollah. Everybody was for Israel. Everybody. The Arab governments, the Europeans, everybody for two weeks. And then it turned. And then it was stop the war, ceasefire, all of this. This is beginning to happen, as you just said. It's going to get a lot worse. It's going to get a lot worse in Europe and around the world. And it's going to get a lot worse here. And it's going to get a lot worse in the State Department, which is exactly what happened in 2006. So there's a real struggle here. It's going to get worse and worse as the ground war really starts. Elliot Abrams, our guest. Elliot, looking at the State Department, we already had one resignation. There's a sense of the State Department. They have a different view of our own foreign policy. I think they think they know more than the White House. Well, Mike Pompeo talked about that. But we're actually seeing a separation as President Biden comes out for Israel. What is going on there? Are they, are they running their own, their own show? Well, there is, you know, a, a diplomatic corps that's there year in, year out. I think it's fair to say that, well, ask yourself about the elections. What percentage of people in, in the State Department voted, ever voted Republican for president? Never mind Donald Trump. Take, you know, McCain, Obama. I mean, go back anywhere you want to. And my guess is, you know, 1%, 2%, 3%. There is a view, yes. And it's the same in most foreign ministries. We're the experts. We don't want to take orders from politicians. What do they know? They should be listening to us. In this case, there's a view that, you know, these administrations, Democratic and Republican, are, are warped. They're too pro-Israel. They're too political. And we know better. And that is true year in, year out. It's true in every decade. So... What I think is different now is I think China and Russia are really benefiting from this and enjoying this. They are aligned. We know that. They could take every opportunity to show that. Go ahead. Good luck with your relationship. But they know that if we are, you just said it, if we have to put battery uh, batteries, or, or Dave Ignatius told us, if we have to put different missile defense systems and take it that we're supposed to go to Ukraine and now they're going to Israel or to our bases in the Middle East, if we have to take some assets that we're going to give to Ukraine and give them to Israel, that already hurts Ukraine's war effort and helps the Russians. You always think two or three moves ahead. What's the best way to handle this while not taking our eye off China and Russia and knowing that they're enjoying this? Well, I think we have most of what we need, that is for Israel and for Ukraine. In the medium run, the thing to do is uh, start rebuilding the defense industries. And we can do that quickly. I mean, that's not a five-year project. We should be doing that right now. But you're pointing, I think, to something that's really the critical thing here. We're back in the kind of Cold War setup where there were two sides. It was the Soviet Union on the other side. Now it's Russia, China, Iran. And the world is really redividing into two camps. We can see the, the way Iran is helping Russia and the way as you said, this war helps Russia by taking our eye off Ukraine. It all helps China. I mean, this is what we're into, and we really need to realize it. We're back in a world that's divided into an American side and the other side, the enemy side. The sooner we realize it, 
the sooner we realize we need a stronger defense, the safer we're going to be. We have a better product. We got allies. Uh, they don't have. They have. They have partners. We have allies. There's a way to do it, uh, and we got to get our own economic house in order. Absolutely, but we also have Democrats and Republicans both have to realize the only way to avoid war is to build a mammoth, intimidating uh, a military. And right now, as good as it is, it's not nearly as good as it could be. Just final thought on that, Elliot. You're. I. I think you're right. It's not as. It's not as big as it should be. And we've got to let people know that we'll use it. And that, that is, I think, the failing right now today. We've given the Russians, the Chinese, and above all, Iran, the sense that we're so reluctant to use it to defend our people and punish attacks on them that they can literally get away with murder. It's always great talking to you. It's uh, at a time in which we need your expertise. Elliot Abrams, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. You got it. one 408 I'll come back and I'll get your calls. And then if you want to write me, do it. BrianKillMe.com. Just click on comments. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Um, just looking at a lot... Uh, I'm just looking at a, a lot what's going on because in a matter of it was supposed to be at 1030. I understand if it's going to be late, but that manhunt going on in Lewiston, Maine, for that uh, for that veteran, uh, Army veteran, spent 20 years in the military. It seems like he just retired. Evidently spent two and a half weeks in a, in a psychological asylum, some type of asylum. He was having a mental breakdown, hearing voices, at which time he expressed to people that he was going to shoot up a military base. Instead, he shot up a bowling alley on youth night, killed at least 22, according to our sources, wounded about 30. Then he went down the block to a restaurant. You look at his Facebook page, and the guy's a bowling enthusiast. He also, according to experts, and I am not one, he really shows that he has 20 years in the military. The way he handles the rifle, the way he walks through, uh, walked through these halls, he looked like a guy that would be in Fallujah trying to take down al-Qaeda. So he is lethal. It almost reminds me of First Blood when Rambo walks through a town, goes into the woods, and they can't find him. And little by little, he's taking him apart. My hope is this guy, if he's that well-trained, either kills himself or turns himself in. Because he looks like he has got a lot of firepower. And I'm not sure small-town Lewiston, Maine, as great as the cops probably are, have what it takes to take him out. But there's going to be a police update shortly. We do know the guy's name. We know his background. Uh, let's see if we can get him. Uh, when we come back, Congressman Jason Smith on getting a new speaker for his party and for the country. And he's fed up with the anti-Israeli protests. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Last thing I'm going to say is a message to the rest of the world. They have been watching this drama play out for a few weeks. We've learned a lot of lessons, but you know what? Through adversity, it makes you stronger. And, yeah. And, and we want our allies around the world to know that this body of lawmakers is reporting again to our duty stations. Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The people's house is back in business. And they picked the right guy, it seems. Uh, I've always been impressed with Congressman Michael Johnson. 
Uh, I don't know why it took so long to get to him. I don't know how much damage has been done. But I think by Election Day, the the stories get so big and plowed over in a presidential year. I don't think you're really going to remember it much. Um, uh, Congressman Jason Smith joins us now uh, out of Missouri, House and Ways Means Committee chair. I understand you got your committees could meet, but you guys just couldn't move any legislation. And you spent so much time in the room trying to pick a speaker. You lost a lot of ground, Congressman, didn't you? That's exactly right. We wasted 22 days of time on the floor to be doing our appropriations bills. We have the deadline of November 17th for government funding to happen, make sure that it's, you know, fiscally sane funding. Um, but we're, we're going to the work on it today. Um, in fact, we're doing the energy and water appropriations bill on the floor. So um, Speaker Johnson has hit the ground running. I'm extremely thrilled um, that every member of the House Republicans voted for him um, and brought him up. He's, uh, he's someone who I had the privilege, Brian, to nominate to become the chairman of the Republican Study Committee, which is the largest conservative caucus within the Republican conference. And that was back in 2018. I looked at Mike and I saw what a great leader he is, a man of principle, a true, strong conservative, and and gets along with everyone. And he brought all the different groups within our conference together. And that's why he's Speaker of the House. Right. I would, you know, personally, I'm just on an outsider. You work with, I always like Kevin McCarthy. Are you guys going to remove, and I like Mike Johnson too, obviously, but uh, what's there not to like? Um, but number number one is, are you going to try to remove that one person move to vacate? I think we should, Brian. I think that it's a very toxic tool that's there. We don't need to ever get where we where we have been the last 22 days. The fact that eight Republicans could join in with 100 percent of the Democrats and remove the Republican speaker and create chaos for 22 days, that's reckless. And we should not allow that tool to be there. But in order to change that rule, Brian, we have to have 217 votes. And eight of those people, I don't think they're willing to change the rules might be worth uh visiting uh here we go though a couple of things we know how conservative he is both there's two, you have 18 members in your caucus that were in districts that joe biden won so no matter how if you come out too conservative you're never going to get elected so is he going to be able to keep that in mind when things like impeachment come up or or a continuing resolution or shutting down the government things that for traditionally purple states or blue states don't like? One of the things that was so great about Speaker McCarthy is that he's been in every one of our congressional districts. He knows the issues that are at hand. Mike Johnson hasn't, but he's going to have to step up to the plate and learn it. There's a huge political side of being Speaker of the House, and he's got a lot of work for him. But you know what? Every member of this conference has to has to step up. I went to 86 congressional districts last year to help win the majority. Every member is going to have to step up and make sure that we win those 18 Biden one districts and also add more. There's there's a couple seats we can pick up in North Carolina, Brian. We might lose some in New York because they're doing a new redistricting up there. But the redistricting in North Carolina looks very favorable. So we just got to keep pressing ahead. We have to make sure we have the right candidate. That's the most important thing is have the candidate that reflects that district, because what works in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, does not work in Palm Springs, California.
Hundred uh, percent. I I just I find it unbelievable that people uh, don't understand that the diversity of our country, diversity of a party, the different school of thought doesn't make you a bad person, especially if it's in your own party. But I know I'm speaking to the choir there. A couple of things you should know in New York: it's uh, over sixty four, over sixty percent of New Yorkers do not want the redistricting, and it is going up to a higher court. So we'll see if it's going to happen again. Remember, Lee Zeldin got within seven. Do you know the latest Siena poll has Donald Trump within nine points of Joe Biden in a state that, that a Republican hasn't won in 40 years because of how illegal immigration has overrun the streets of New York to the tune of 130,000 people without jobs who were feeding, clothing and, and doing their laundry? Brian, people are fed up. When you travel anywhere in this country, they talk about the border. They see how reckless it is to allow it to be porous, where where millions of people, more people have crossed the southern border than the entire population of my home state of Missouri. That is an absolute disgrace. We have to secure our borders. There's so many aspects. Inflation's gone up 17.9% since Joe Biden took the oath of office. And that means every American is paying more to put food on their table, clothes on their backs and gasoline in their cars. That is why they're fed up. That's why Joe Biden is in trouble in reelection. Congressman Jason Smith, our guest. But Congressman, I saw today the economy is growing almost at 5%. And yet Bidenomics remarkably unpopular. The president's got 32% approval rating when it comes to the economy. But if you have low unemployment and an economy growing like that and inflation as high as it is and interest rates as high as it is heading down, why is it that the numbers don't result in Democrats feel, uh, or Americans feeling that the economy is good? Why do you think that is? Why are the numbers going against public sentiment? Look at real Americans. Talk to real Americans. None of them would buy that the economy is growing at a successful rate because those folks are struggling. They have lost two months of their salary just because of inflation since Joe Biden's taken the oath of office. That means they have less disposable income to be able to provide for their family. And so you can say all that you want, but you talk to real Americans, they're facing it every day and they're not buying this. Yeah, it's so it's really strange. But that's why the president tried to spend the whole summer running on Bidenomics and got the Heisman. Nobody wanted any part of it. I'm Brian. I had encouraged the president to come to my field hearings. The House Ways and Means Committee has been having field hearings all over this country, whether it's Yukon, Oklahoma, Kimball, Minnesota, Staten Island, New York or Peachtree City, Georgia. Hearing from real Americans, working class families, small businesses who are just doing everything they can to get by. We got one. We have uh, allies in the Middle East, but none like Israel. And for some reason, this anti-American sentiment for this next generation seems to have found Palestine as their new uh, golden child, which doesn't exist, by the way. Palestinians exist. Palestine doesn't. If they understand the region, they'd understand why. But listen to what we we witnessed. Thousands come out, walk out of their colleges and schools, many of with teachers and professors to protest against Israel, despite the fact that they just lost uh, to one thousand four hundred of their citizens, including 791 civilians. Listen to this. Cut 14. Let this be a reminder that Palestine has been occupied for 75 years. When Palestine is under attack, what do we do? Stand up like that. When Palestine is under attack, what do we do? Stand up like that. Here's more from NYU. Cut 13. 
Do you think this is the West Bank? No, it's the West Side of New York City. The other one, the first one was the University of Minnesota. You're, you're sickened by this like I am. To say I'm disgusted by statements of support for Hamas uh, that we've seen in recent days is an understatement. Celebrating, excusing, or downplaying the horrific rape, torture, and murder of innocent people is the same thing as supporting violence or even calling for it. It's absolutely unacceptable that these universities have not disavowed what's happened just this week alone, Brian. George Washington University, right here in Washington, D.C., you saw a group of pro-Palestinian students that projected on the library that's named after two Jewish donors, glory to our martyrs. Glory to our martyrs. And what did George Washington University do? Nothing. They did not disavow that. And let me tell you, being over the Ways and Means Committee, we have jurisdiction over all tax policy. That's why we need to haul in these universities, look at their preferential tax treatment, because there should not be preferred speech, freedom of speech, but not preferred speech. And if you do preferred speech, there needs to be actions that you are held to. So Donald Trump came out and said, for if you're American and you're pro-Israeli and you're Jewish, you should not be voting for Democrats. And they thought that was the worst thing they ever heard. It's a fact. Now, yesterday, there was a resolution passed to, to support Israel. There was a, uh, was a resolution backing Israel, his first move as speaker. And guess what? Ten Democrats didn't vote for it. Bowman, Bush, Corey Bush, Andre Carson, Al Green, Summer Lee, Thomas Massey, AOC, Eli, Thomas Massey, a Republican, that's shocking, Elon Omar, uh, Congressman Ramirez, Rashida Tlaib, present, which is just gutless, Joaquin Castro, Caesar Garcia, Jay Apollo, Presley, and Velasquez. How does that happen? It's the simplest vote you'll ever make in your life, and you have 10, you have seven right for present and 10 vote. Uh, vote against uh, vote against it. Those dying Democrats are a complete disgrace. Cori Bush comes from my home state. She advocates defunding the police. Still does. And the city that she yeah, and the city she represents, Brian, in my home state, per capita, has more murders than anywhere yes. else in the United States. Let's. These people are not rational. They want to destroy our society, and they they promote propaganda that is as fake news as you possibly can find. The fact that they're harboring and supporting terrorists who have killed more Israel, more people of the is more more Jewish people since the Holocaust is absolutely unacceptable, and these people do not deserve to serve in the halls of Congress. Congressman Smith, last question: Just uh, the mechanics of it. You only you got about two weeks to come up and fund the government and get something out the ten appropriations bills to the Senate. My the word that I was getting, but you would know better, is that Republicans were fighting with Republicans on this on these appropriations bills. That was the holdup. It's not that you guys were on vacation. What could you tell us about this? You know, the funding of government is extremely important. We have to do it by November 17th, just like what you said. That has been a topic of conversation. There's some Republicans that want to spend more than what was agreed to in the Fiscal Responsibility Act back in May, that debt limit, um, the debt limit agreement that was uh, brokered by Speaker McCarthy and, and Joe Biden. We can't allow this reckless spending to go unchecked. 
We need to have fiscal sanity in the appropriations bills that we bring forward. I feel very confident about the leadership of Speaker Johnson in helping navigate us through these waters. But we, it's not just Democrats. It's also some Republicans that we have to look at in this chamber. No, that's what I was talking about, that you guys are arguing with each other on spending, uh, especially. Uh, and and that's, that's the why Kevin McCarthy couldn't get across all the appropriations bills done, because you guys couldn't agree. It's not that you weren't working. It's exactly right. We've been we've been focused on appropriations process since May. And May is when we got the fiscal numbers that we're supposed to be living by. But for example, just in the last 10 days, this administration is proposing more than one hundred and seventy five billion dollars of supplemental spending. That's not even funding government. This is new money. And guess what? Less than 10 percent of that one hundred and seventy five billion actually goes to Israel, our greatest ally ally in the Middle East. The rest goes towards domestic programs and also Ukraine. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Where do you stand on Ukraine funding? Let me tell you, I voted for Ukraine funding when it first started, but I haven't voted for it since. I feel like that Ukrainians need to be held accountable on how they have spent that money, and to this date, they have not provided it to Congress. If they could provide a, a solid audit system that you are comfortable with, you, you appreciate the mission, you just want accountability. We absolutely have to have accountable of U.S. tax dollars. Got it. Congressman Jason Smith, thank you. Thank you, sir. A lot Take on care. the agenda. Appreciate your passion. one 408 7669 we come back, we'll bring you the latest from this press conference. Janet Mills, the, Democrat, uh, uh, the Democratic governor of Maine, is speaking now about the manhunt to find the killer that, 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 uh, that took the lives of at least 22 uh, last night in Lewiston. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to, to your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. I'm profoundly sad to stand for you today and report that 18 people lost their lives and 13 people injured in last night's attacks. In memory of those we lost and in honor of those who were injured, President Biden and I have ordered all U.S. flags and state of Maine flags to be lowered to half-staff immediately for the next five days. Maine State Police have issued a shelter-in-place order for Lewiston, Lisbon, and Bowdoin as the manhunt for that person of interest, Robert Card of Bowdoin, continues. Robert Card lived right by there, uh, 40 years old. Uh, 20, he's got a 2013 white suburban that he abandoned. The door was still open, was right by a boat dock in Lisbon. We're talking about a shooting that took place last night, 36 miles north of Portland. Uh, he recently threatened to shoot up a military base where he served for 20 years. Uh, he served, he had to be, uh, institutionalized for two weeks for a mental illness. He said he was hearing voices, but somehow they let him go. Uh, they knew all this. This came out right away. And he's armed to the teeth. A couple of things. This is one of those situations. And I know that the flip side would be you're not going to institutionalize someone if you know they're going to take away his guns. But if anybody needed his guns taken away, it's this guy. Goes to an institution for two weeks because of violence. He's got two ex-wives. I I imagine that he might. uh, They must be nervous. They might have kids. I don't know. 
But if you're hearing voices, you threaten to shoot up an army base, and when you get out in two weeks, you still have guns? If that is indeed the story, unless they, he took the guns and he found a way to get them illegally, this is exactly the types of people that should get guns taken away. The people who are for the Second Amendment, who love to hunt, who love to shoot, want self-protection, do the licensing, get the training. This type of stuff hurts your cause. Now you're going to have the President of the United States through this tragedy, 18 dead, 13 wounded, you heard him. uh, And the guy still on the loose could kill again. And he's highly skilled. Now in a short period of time, maybe even today, President Biden will come out and speak, talk about the horror of it and the need to ban assault weapons. I don't have assault weapons. But for the Second Amendment, uh, people, assault weapons, that is a label that doesn't work. Assault weapons is way too broad, but it's not going to stop the president from using it, this opportunity to say just that. Mark my words. And if this guy had a manifesto, I guess we're never going to see it if we're going to go by the Nashville axiom, which is the shooter has a manifesto. He happens to be going through transition and having a rough time. He might have written about that, but that doesn't further the Democratic cause. I believe that's why we don't get this manifesto. And this, if this guy did write down his evil intentions, we'll see if it's going to be kept under lock and key. Just a horrible situation all along. Hope they get this guy. Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News radio studios in midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. I have one Brian Kilmeade here. Thanks so much for listening on a really busy news day. Uh, I'm following this story. The press conference still going on uh, in Maine, in Lewiston, Maine, where a shooter killed at least 18, uh, wounded 13 as he walked into a bowling alley on Youth Night and just started shooting people. Then went to a restaurant, just started shooting people. He's from the area, 20 years in the military. Uh, there's a press conference now to update it, but it's a manhunt, a massive manhunt. This guy is dangerous. Uh, his name is Robert Card, last seen in a white Subaru. We found the car, but not him. Meanwhile, that's a lot, as well as what's going on in the Middle East and beyond with the former president of the United States, the current president of the United States. And, man, we got a speaker. So before we get to Harold Ford and an Israeli-born journalist, Yaakov Katz, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This body of lawmakers is reporting again to our duty stations. Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The People's House is back in business. And that is just like that. They have a speaker. It's over. Yet just beginning. Mike Johnson is the new guy. And now he must move like a house on fire to avoid a government shutdown. Analyze and perhaps expedite emergency aid to the border. Israel and, dare I say, Ukraine. Let's see if the new speaker can handle some of the old speaker's unity issues. Number two. I think these kids at the colleges have for brains. Yeah, we have one reliable ally in the Middle East. That's Israel. I've given to Colombia probably about $15 million over many years. And I'm going to suspend my giving. I'll give my giving to other organizations. That's hedge fund billionaire Leon Cooperman. Disturbing pro-Hamas and the Palestinian protests surge and anti-Israeli protests surge onto city streets, not just in New York, but around the country. Anti-Semitism is everywhere. The hate has got to stop. Where did it come from? We'll discuss. Number one. We are preparing the ground operation 
and uh, we will launch the ground operation. We have no other choice because if you want to defeat Hamas, you cannot just do it just from the air. You have to go in and defeat them. That is Michael Herzog. He's Israeli's ambassador to the U.S., probing but not invading. That's what the IDF is doing while Hezbollah, Hamas, and Iran make it clear they are together. They have formed an alliance of resistance. They actually, actually brought in cameras yesterday to show what they were doing in Beirut. What will it take for this administration to unleash, uh, uh, unleash Israel and just get some type of response when our guys are hit 14 times since October 7th? Harold Ford joins us now, former Democratic congressman, uh, co-host of The Five and everything else on the news channel. Harold, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Good to hear your voice and congrats on, on everything. Yeah, thanks. And by the way, thanks for supporting the book. You're on the back of the book, Teddy and Booker T, out uh, uh, November 7th. Not next week, the week after. So look forward to talking to you about that, too. I do as well. Again, congrats on that as well. Uh, so first off, uh, Harold, we got a speaker. Uh, Speaker of the House, what do you think of the choice? What do you think it would mean? It's going to mean over these these next up these next days to try to fund the government by November seventeenth. So first off, congratulations to uh, the Congressman, the new Speaker. I don't know him. Uh, I only know him uh, through his appearances on on the network over the many months. Uh, he strikes me as being a, a, a before I heard him yesterday. Strikes me as being a conservative Republican that maintain a lot of the, the views that you would you would think consistent with, with that part of the party. I listened to him yesterday, and I have to tell you, I was pleasantly surprised. Great speech. I thought it was not only a great speech, it was the right tone. Uh, it was the right outreach to the, to the Democratic side. I think his opening remarks were that he and Hakeem Jeffries have differing governing views uh, or views about governing, but uh, that he knew in his heart, this is the new speaker, so he knew in his heart that Hakeem Jeffries love this country and care about his country, and he hoped, to, he hoped to work with him. I think that's the tone that every American, I don't care, I'm a Democrat, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, where you live in the country, that's, that's what you would want, especially after the four weeks, uh, that three or four weeks that we had to deal with not having a speaker. Now, having said that, in your lead-in, there are two or three things he's going to have to deal with right away. Obviously, the looming, uh, dealing of, the looming uh, prospect of our government shutting down again if they can't fund it. Uh, he voted against the agreement, as we all know, that was reached between Republicans and Democrats just a few weeks ago. Uh, so I'm hopeful that he, if, if he indeed feels that way right now, that he's trying to find a way to avoid a shutdown, because I think that would be terrible for so many reasons, including this leading to the second issue of what we're going to do to fund uh, our friends in Israel, what we're going to do to fund the border, what we're going to do, meaning what we're going to do to fund to help defend our border, and what we're going to do to ensure that the Israelis uh, I'm sorry, they, that the Ukrainians have what they need to fight off Putin. Uh, so I'm hopeful they can get an agreement on all of these things. I, hope, I think the president's package, which I've read, or at least the summary of it I've read and read what details have been released, I think it's a good package. I know there are going to be some that may try to separate the funding for Ukraine and separate from the funding for Israel. I don't quite understand that. Um, but uh, if, if there is a separation, I hope the separation is only for an hour and they pass them yeah. right behind one another. I hope they actually hope they pass it in unison. I think that would be the strongest message uh, that America uh, stands behind its allies, with its allies. And we have to remember, we don't have one troop on the ground in Ukraine and as we speak at fighting that war. And as of right now, we don't have a troop on the ground. We have carriers, obviously, in the region, but no troops on the ground. Uh, in the uh, Middle East or in the Israeli region. So, uh, Congressman, you know, I, I believe like you believe about Ukraine, which is uh, getting it's harder and harder to find people that agree with me that are on the right. 
Uh, but I think people have to open up a map and understand history. It is essential that Ukraine is successful. But this is what they have to do. They have to get an, an audit that people agree on. Just let's hear it go on the money. I don't think we should be uh, funding pension funds for the Ukrainians. This is a time at war. We get it. But we want to supply them and let them win a war or survive a war and push the Russians back. Uh, so funding pension plans when people live in paycheck to paycheck is a hard sell. So the president also, he's not a great speaker, but he's got to talk more about it and not not dictate to people, but explain it. I watched Kevin McCarthy the day he was ousted explain the need for Ukraine and what it means to America more eloquently than I heard anybody else since this whole war started thanks to the Russian invasion. There's got to be that type of dialogue to people. Like, for example, if you explain why we needed to stay in Afghanistan, the American public would have bought it. But they just said, no, America's sick of it. Let's get out. We know the result. And nobody likes that result. If we quit Ukraine, no one's going to like that result. But I think with nothing he's got to do, for example, as Tom Cotton said, you want money for the border? Good. We need money for the border. But is it going to help people at the Roosevelt Hotel? Are we going to be doing their laundry with this money? Or are we going to be doing it to secure the border, get people more funding, get them some pay raises, build the wall that even President Biden says that we need? Those type of things is the, de- the devil's not even in the details, in the, in the intention. I, I don't disagree with you. That's why I, I do think what the speaker said yesterday, and I think a lot of Democrats and Republicans agree with him, we need some regular order where you have these conversations and you have this kind of information revealed to the public. Um, and, Brian, I, I, look, I, I appreciate your uh, and respect your position on Ukraine. I respect your position on everything because you're, you, at least where we disagree, we, have an, we are open about and transparent about where we disagree, and we try to reach some reconcil- or try to find some reconciliation. But I think there's some people who are just opposed to everything. Ukraine for reasons other than what you stated. I think making sure there's not money spent on things that are not germane, things that are not important, things that don't help us to reach or achieve the end that we want, which is to beat to beat Putin and to ensure that, uh, that he does not encroach or take part of that land and, for that matter, invade a NATO country, which would obviously necessitate us uh, uh, defending that country or risk the dissolution of, of NATO. Uh, so I hope all of those things come out and we, we get to the bottom. But, but as, you, as you mentioned, the, the wall for one, just one moment, I've been a supporter of the wall sure, uh, and continue to be. But I have to tell you, as I look at what happened in Israel, I continue to read some of the the, the documents that have been made public about uh, what people are speculating about how long the Hamas was planning this, yeah. uh, how they were able to invade the country, and even how the wall didn't work in certain areas. Uh, that still does not make me not think we need a wall in the U.S. I think the wall wall has 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 potential to work, but won't work part of it unconditionally. You have to you yeah. have to add other things. So, I, I just hope that as we as we go through this exercise, and I listen to Senator Cotton, Senator Cotton and others. Um, that we don't we don't let the devil don't let perfect get in the way of a really good yeah. piece of legislation. No legislation is perfect by any stretch. I don't care what it is. Um, but I do know if we don't continue to fund the Ukrainians, we run the risk of what you and I fear. It's Afghanistan is, too. I think the Ukrainians losing, which would not be good for America uh, in any sense. You know, just going back, I was I was reading David Petraeus's book about conflict. I didn't know this, but when we went into Korea to save Korea. And push them back to the 38th parallel, kill 400,000, I think 400,000 North Koreans died. We lost 38,000. You know what the message was in that standoff to the communists? We can beat America. We had a reputation of being invincible that gave birth to Vietnam and all the proxy wars throughout Africa and Central America, which ended up in us eventually winning the Cold War. 
But it's amazing the messaging that happens when you don't follow through, even though it's the law of the jungle, the strongest guy wins, that's still the world we live in. You have to have strong, overwhelming defense and willing to stick up for your allies everywhere. Show your enemies it's just not worth it. We're not showing Iran that at all right now. We are beginning missile defense instead of trying to take out their militias. But to finish the Congre- the the story on Capitol Hill yesterday, there was a resolution offered. Members who voted, uh, these are the House went, went for a resolution backing Israel. It's his first new, uh, move as speaker. Just a resolution backing Israel. Do you know when Jamal Bowman, Rashid Tlaib, Congressman Ramirez, Omar, AOC, and Republican Tom Massey, which is inexcusable, Summer Lee, Al Green, Andre Carson. So there's 10 and seven voted to uh, present. Did not support Israel with the vote. What is your reaction to that, Harold Ford? I disagree with them. And thankfully, they don't that, that group was entitled to their First Amendment right. They don't represent my view, nor do they represent the Congress's view. And mainly the Democrats had voted uh, president or voted not in favor. They don't represent President Biden's view either, which is America's foreign policy and military viewpoint because he's our president. I think our president has has been as strong as any leader around the globe in supporting uh, our friends and allies in Israel. He's also been as strong as anyone in saying that we have to ensure that Palestinians, innocent Palestinians, innocent Palestinians receive the relief that they need. The president's also said he would not call for a ceasefire until every – wouldn't even consider a ceasefire, let me say, until every hostage is released, every Israeli hostage is released. So I, those votes happen, and we can look at votes like that sometimes, uh, Brian, and, and point to both sides how silly and how nonsensical some of the votes may be. But thank God. Uh, there's a reasonable group of people in the Congress that vote. The overwhelming majority voted in favor of it. And thank God we have a president uh, that has li- lined up American resources behind the Israelis in this awful, awful fight that they're having to wage. And frankly, the Palestinians, innocent Palestinians, are having to having to live through because of Hamas. Uh, would a president, Harold Ford, have answered back when these militia groups are hitting our 2,500 troops in Iraq and our 900 in Syria? Would you have answered already these attacks? Look, I, I'm, first of all, I'm flattered. My name is even associated with that term, President. But I, I, having not knowing, knowing not what the president knows, or knowing not what our intelligence and our military leaders know, I defer to the president on this front. Uh, it kills me not to answer back because it just brings more attacks. Fourteen attacks since to, since October seventh. I mean, that to me is not why we put nine hundred billion dollars into our military. Uh, by the way, this just this is in uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has introduced censure resolution for Rashida Tlaib. Is that a move that you would support, being that she's vehemently uh, anti-Israeli and basically called our president a liar, uh, that the hospital was indeed hit by Israel missile strikes, not by Islamic Jihad errant rocket? Are you for that censure? Do you think that's a good move? Look, I, I think don't, – don't misconstrue what I'm saying. I disagree with Rashid Tlaib and there are others. I disagree with Marjorie Taylor Greene on a lot of things also, but I don't, I don't think we censure people because you disagree with them. That's why we have elections. Uh, and if you're going to – elections allow for people in her district and his district or for any member of Congress's district – and I know we're talking about two women. I meant he or she, just anybody. If, if voters don't want them, then they can unelect them. Uh, the censure is designed for not to say I disagree with you and I think your position is so reprehensible. Uh, censure is designed when people break break rules, and I, you have every right to vote against something. But let me be clear. I disagree with the Congresswoman Tlaib uh, on this issue and the others that voted uh, others that voted not in favor of that resolution. It, it confounds me. 
Uh, but I don't think you that, that the consensure is not what I would be doing to uh, to do that. If I were them, I'd be looking to find people to beat them in their districts. If you disagree with uh, them. Harold Ford, our guest, Harold. Right now, we have Gavin Newsom. He went to Israel. Then he went over to China. He was treated very well representing California, a state like that. I mean, he's making sure the cameras are on. What percentage of do you what are the percentage chances that you believe that he's going to end up a candidate this year? I think it's I think it's unlikely that he ends up a candidate this year. I think one of the things that has happened over the last six weeks and four weeks in particular with the tragedy in the Middle East um, or the tragedy and tragedies in the Middle East is that. I think voters are looking for, on, on both sides of the aisle, looking for candidates who have who exude the kind of experience needed to help help us navigate what is yeah. obviously going to be a very complicated set of situations for us. So, look, I think Gavin Newsom, you and I have talked about it on air. You've, I think you've covered this as well as anybody with the kind of deafness and intelligence and, and frankly, nonpartisan ways of looking at this. Uh, he's an impressive guy, and he has certainly has a future. I don't know if his future uh, as running for president is, a, is as imminent as some think. Uh, but when you represent a state like California that is one of the six or seven largest economies in the, around the world, if it's by itself, right. you should be traveling the globe and should be understanding how you can bring more business back right. to your state for that matter of the country. But, Harold, you would not be running that state like that. You would not be focused so on green technology, having gas $6 uh, a gallon, uh, having pe- more people leave than come in in the state that offers more than any other state, I would argue, in the union. I used to live out there. If you look at his track record, it's not much to run on. If you look at him, he looks like he's cast as president in the, in the, next, uh, in the next Independence Day movie. <laughs> he is uh, – look, th- there are things that he's doing that I support, and, and I've, I've heard many people who are out there who like him, who think that he is far more moderate than perhaps some of the policies – Suggest I tell you one of the issues that concerns me not only for him but for every governor, uh, and and certainly in big states, is what you're doing with crime. And I, I think that absolutely that so many residents across the country. That's not a partisan issue at all. It's just an issue that I think public right. safety that every American, regardless of where you live, wants to address. And my prayers go out to the people in Maine, who obviously, uh, and I hope gotcha. the law enforcement and others, they seek, and I hope they find this guy as quickly as I know they, they want to and we all want them to. Former Congressman of Tennessee, now a New Yorker, Harold Ford Jr., on the five. Harold, thank you. Congrats with the book again. You got it. Back in a moment. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're still following everything to Maine, and we come back, we're going to find out what's happening with Israel, with an Israeli-born American journalist who's going to give us an idea of when this invasion could start. We also see the Pentagon's having a, a press conference uh, a little bit later today. Uh, meanwhile, just a quick announcement. Teddy and Booker T comes out November 7th. Uh, there's still some tickets left. Not many in Red Bank, New Jersey, November 9th. I'm going to talk about all the books, Patriotic Motivational Inspirational Night. Uh, Panavidra, WOKV listeners, hope to see you out there on the 10th. And don't forget, we're going to be in Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh at the Carnegie of Homestead Music Hall. And then the next day, right after Holland, Michigan, just go to BrianKillMe.com. A book comes with every ticket. And there's VIP opportunities where I get a chance to meet you which quite possibly is the coolest thing. So we have a chance to talk about everything going on in the news. And it's just one of those unscripted nights on stage that I think people really uh, seem to enjoy. And then January is a couple of dates in Chicago, uh, right in Chicago, as well as uh, Joliet, uh, uh, Skokie, Illinois, and Joliet, Illinois. Uh, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Keep it here. Great guests and your phone calls. 
Don't move. Radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want to be clear. The timing of the ground invasion will unanimously decided by the World Cabinet along with the Chief of Staff and the Cabinet. And we will act in order to ensure best terms for our soldiers for the coming operations. When we will get into Gaza down the road, we will collect the highest price from those murderers who committed the horrible atrocities. Hamas, ISIS. So that was Benjamin Netanyahu through a translator in Tel Aviv yesterday. Do have some news, too. Hossein al-Abdul, the head of the terrorist group's rocket array in North Khan Yunus, was eliminated uh, yesterday after intel of his whereabouts was obtained uh, by Israel's, uh, Israel's version of the FBI. So that's good news. They are killing some of these fighters from afar without a full-blown invasion. But we believe that is inevitable. Let's go out to Yaakov Katz, an Israeli-born American journalist. Yaakov, uh, welcome back. Your thoughts about this guy, at least uh, and they showed the video of him being taken out. It shows they do have intelligence in Gaza. At what level would you rate it? How comprehensive is it? Look, Israel's intelligence is very uh, deep, and it penetrates into Gaza. Now, with that said, though, Brian, we all know that there was the huge intelligence failure on October 7th that Hamas was crossed into Israel, invaded Israel, and carried out that murderous rampage and massacre. So intelligence is only as good as what you got. But what Israel does now, and it's covering Gaza with every possible sensor and drone and satellite and, and signal intelligence capability it has, It waits for these guys to see when they leave their hideouts or their underground bunkers. It, it finds them, and when it does, it takes advantage of that opportunity, and it tries to eliminate them. And that this was a successful strike of that. So uh, how many are there, and do you think they'll stay and fight, or do you think they're already leaving? Look, we, we, we estimate here in Israel that there's about— You know, 30,000 to 40,000 of these fighters inside Gaza. Now, with that said, they come from all the different factions. A lot of them are Hamas. There's also Islamic Jihad, another Iranian proxy. There's the PFLP and the resistance committees. You know, everybody's got their, their terrorist group. But what, what, what Israel wants to try to achieve here is obviously kill or capture as many of the Hamas fighters as possible. And the estimates, I was talking with somebody in the IDF, a high-ranking officer the other day, they already estimate that they have killed out of the entire number of people that the Hamas authorities claim have been killed, which is about 5,000 in Gaza. Israel says that at least half of them are terrorists, are gunmen. Um, but with that said, what Israel really wants to do to, is to try to paralyze these organizations is by taking out the top leadership. And there, we're looking at about four to five to six Of these top people, one of them is a guy by the name of Muhammad Def. He is the head of the Hamas military. He's been in that position. Yeah, he's apparently lost a leg and an arm and an eye and other attempted Israeli uh, uh, targeted assassinations over the years. Another one is Yahya Sinwar, who is the mastermind, the head of Hamas in Gaza. He is the guy who probably put this whole thing together. And, and Brian, just by the way, he was in Israel's prisons and he was released in 2011. When Israel did a previous exchange for an Israeli hostage, an Israeli soldier who was held 
in Gaza. So basically, a prior Netanyahu government let out the mastermind of this massacre, and he's now the one in charge that we're trying to get our hands on. Uh, Yaakov Katar, guest, an Israeli-born American journalist. So, yeah, we're trying to get our hands on him. But we also know in Doha, these guys are living luxurious lives in Four Seasons hotels. What role did the political arm seems to be uh, living it up, enjoying this great moment in their horrific history? I mean, you know, what you're talking about, Brian, has got to be one of the crazier realities of this of, of what, what the people of Gaza go through, right? They, they're led by Hamas in Gaza, but the political leaders, like you said, Ismail Haniyeh and Abu Marzouk and some of these other people, they live a life in the lap of luxury in Doha and Qatar. And the Qataris, let's remember, play a very complicated game. On the one hand, they supply and fund Hamas millions and tens of millions of dollars, even every month, if not more. Uh, but they also, and they give them, they harbor them, they give them sanctuary in their city. But then when it comes time, like now, to negotiate a hostage release, the Qataris raise their hand and say, hey, we can help you because we know we have communication with Hamas. So it's almost, it's like so crazy that it's like we let the terrorists shoot us and then say, hey, but we'll stitch you up, right? The world has to come to the Qataris and say, it's enough already with this, this two-sided game you guys are playing. You have to stop siding with the terrorists, and you have to stop funding them. We know that the, uh, the Israelis are not shy about assassinating people in Iran, allegedly. Why would they be shy about doing the same thing in Qatar? Look, Qatar right now is, with all of that criticism that I just voiced, Qatar is apparently playing a productive role. We saw the statement by Biden after the release of the first two hostages, the mother and daughter who live out in a suburb of Chicago. Uh, we saw just yesterday, and you and I spoke about this on, on Fox and Friends, we saw just yesterday the tweet by Israel's national security advisor also thanking the Qataris. Why would he do that? Is, of course, he knows that the Qataris are, are playing a very negative and dangerous role, but the Qataris want to be kissed up too. There's nothing more important than, than their image. So he has to pay that tax to get them to continue to work for the hostages. And that has to remain one of Israel's primary objectives at the moment is to get back. There's still over 200 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. A nine-month-old baby, Brian, a four-year-old kid, a nine-year-old kid, 12-year-old. I mean, 30 kids under the age of like 14 or 15 are in the Gaza Strip. It, it, it's unimaginable what's going on. So, of course, while it's terrible what the Qataris do, for the time being, we have to work with them. What will happen the day after this conflict? We will have to go after every single one of these terrorists, no matter where they are, mm -hmm. without any impunity. So I want you to hear what President Biden said yesterday, and tell me if this is naive. Cut three. We also have to remember that Hamas does not represent, let me say it again, Hamas does not represent the vast majority of the Palestinian people on the Gaza Strip or anywhere else. Hamas is hiding behind Palestinian civilians, and it's despicable and not surprisingly cowardly as well. Is it true? I, you know, I hear that from a lot of people, but then I say, go back to the elections. The last yep. time the Palestinians held election, Hamas won the election. Hamas is in control of Gaza. If the Palestinian people don't want Hamas, let them rise up against Hamas. What we've seen over the last 15 years here in the Middle East is that when people want they know how to rise up against their leaders. They did that in Egypt. They did that in, in Tunisia. They've done that in Syria, or they tried at least. We've seen how that can be. People know how to rise up. It's not happening in Gaza. Why? I guess because they want the people who they elected. So to keep on you know, spreading that claim, I, know. I agree 
that we have to, you know, Israel, of course, and Israel does this, Brian, and you know this. You've been here. You've seen what, what happened. Israel does not target civilians. Israel does everything it Ever. can to avoid yeah. civilian casualties. But to say that Hamas doesn't represent them, yes, Hamas does represent them. And that's unfortunate. And that's terrible. And we should do everything we can not to hurt civilians. But the enemy right now is, unfortunately, the Hamas-led Gaza Strip. That is, is the enemy that we're fighting. And I thought Israel was brilliant when they said, well, you're denying Israel, you're denying the, the Gaza Strip fuel. Let them have fuel. Really? They showed him a satellite photo of all the fuel that Hamas has. They go, ask them for exactly. the, for the uh, oil and gas. They have it all. Meanwhile, the president thinks it's 1988 again. Listen to this. Cut five. It also means that when this crisis is over, there has to be a vision of what comes next. And in our view, it has to be a two-state solution. Two-state solution? Where's that state go? <laughs> you know, that's another one of these things. People are saying to me, I have friends in, in you know, the U.S. and Europe who are like, listen, keep fighting Hamas, but at least say that when it's over, you're going to go, work towards a two-state solution. And I say to them, guys, you're not understanding what's happening here. This is a fight for Israel's survival right now. We have the whole world watching us. Our enemies are on the borders attacking us. Iran is waiting. And, and, and we have to fight now to defeat in the decisive victory our enemies. What comes down the line? There's no two-state solution with these terrorists, right? There's no two-state solution with leaders. Even if we say Abu Mazen in Ramallah in the West Bank is a good guy, let's not forget, Brian, he pays salaries to people who murder Israelis. The people even in the Gaza Strip who murdered Israelis in those communities that they invaded on October 7th, they, if they one day are caught or captured or killed, their families will get salaries from the Palestinian Authority, the same Palestinian Authority that the President Biden wants us to make a two-state solution with. Does that make sense? Would America make peace mm. with a country and a government that pays the terrorists to kill Americans? We all know the answer to that question. How about this? Our guys are being targeted. We know that. Uh, in Iraq 14 times since October 7th. Senator Katie Britt said this uh, yesterday on our network. Listen, cut 11. This is what happens when you project weakness. That's what we've seen from the Biden administration since day one. We have got to go back to a strategy of maximum pressure, of bone-crushing sanctions. What we've even seen with this $6 billion deal where we have asked the president to refreeze that money, he's doing it on a handshake deal. The fact that this administration thinks that they're going to find moderates in the Iranian regime um, has truly sent people on a fool's errand. We have to achieve peace through strength. And when our troops are attacked, we must respond uh, with defensive strikes. Don't you believe that, too? Brian, I couldn't agree more. And I've heard even you talk about this. This is so true, right? The, the one language, and you said this the other day, the one language that people understand in the Middle East is one of force and strength. And right now, while it's really nice that the U.S. is sending, and, and by the way, I don't just say that. Those aren't just words. It's really amazing, and it gives Israelis confidence that the president came here, that Secretary Blinken has been here, Secretary Austin sure. has been here, that the Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group is in the East Med, and that the Eisenhower is now on its way to the Persian Gulf. That, that gives Israel a sense of confidence, knowing that America stands with it. But if America allows Iranian proxies to attack it and doesn't respond, or responds just against the proxies, and doesn't respond against who's sending those proxies, we're again sending the wrong message. What we saw on October 7th needs to be a wake-up call not just for Israel, but for the world. Containment does not work with people who are bloodthirsty terrorists. They want us dead. They want to annihilate our way of life. And the only way to respond to that is with great 
force and strength and perseverance. And we can all do that together. America has known in the past how to do that. This is a unique opportunity to once again stand on the right side of this thing. I do. And can you imagine if Iran is not allowed, not only able to attack Israel and the U.S. with their militias, but they get a nuclear weapon? Can you imagine how different this would be if they had a nuclear weapon? If they had a nuclear weapon and those terrorists had crossed into Israel, imagine for a moment, while Israel now is still preparing the ground incursion, but the Iranian Ayatollahs would come out and say to Israel, if you dare cross into Gaza, we will throw a nuclear weapon at you. What would happen to Israel's operational freedom? Would Israel be able to defend itself, knowing that it's constantly living under the shadow of a nuclear threat? What's happening now, and that's why this is so important, that that they all be stopped, not just the proxies, but also the Iranians. This is an opportunity to really reset the paradigm that we've been living it with in this myth that we can contain our enemies here in the Middle East. It's not working. And unfortunately, we in Israel fell asleep also at the wheel. That has to be said. We made huge mistakes, and we're now paying the price for them. 1,500 people almost have been killed, 200 held hostages. This is terrible for this country. We're still in a state of major trauma and shock. And every day when I watch more videos and hear more testimonies, your heart rips apart. But we also have to stand strong and fight back. And I think America has a big role here as well. Yeah, and you said they've used the last uh, two weeks uh, to uh, made it very useful. Plotting and planning went for the invasion, correct? They've been plotting and planning. They were getting ready. Look, time is on our side. We we, we don't we don't have to work according to Hamas's timeline. We know, you know, they must have thought from the beginning. Of course, the IDF is going to run right in the Israel Defense Forces. So they've been setting booby traps and they've been preparing IEDs and explosive devices and the likes. Israel, by softening the ground, by taking out targets from the air, is going to make it easier for that ground incursion once it takes place. And we now have to seize the initiative, not give it to them. We will work according to what is in our interest. And that might be to continue by the air. That might be to send in the ground forces. But the ground forces is not the end goal. The ground forces is a means to achieve the objective. What the objective is, is what the government needs to declare what that objective is. Is it the destruction of Hamas, as some people have said, what that exactly means, that's a little more complicated when we talk about well, how, what exactly that, that would be. But Israel has to use the abilities and the capabilities it has to achieve the goals that the government sets for itself. Uh, Yaakov Katz, uh, stay safe. Keep us up to date on what's happening. Thanks, Appreciate Brian. it. Uh, all right. When we come back, it's your turn. one 866 We'll take your calls. Also monitoring everything. Uh, that's going on, including the conclusion of that press conference as the manhunt continues for that Army veteran who has lost his mind, killed 18, wounded 13 others, still armed, still very dangerous. Don't move. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I think these kids at the colleges have for brains. Yeah, we have one reliable ally in the Middle East. That's Israel. We only have uh, one democracy in the Middle East. That's Israel. Okay? And we have one economy tolerant of different people, you know, gays, lesbians, etc. That's Israel. So they have no idea what these young kids are doing. It's totally true, and that is a billionaire, for a Columbia grad, who says, I give $50 million to this school, I'm cutting it off because of the protest. And no president at Columbia, at NYU, at Hunter College, at New School, Harvard, Yale, 
um, I have to say Harvard did speak up, but it was late, not enough. Uh, has has pushed back against his anti-Israel, Israel anti-Semitic views. Why are you marching for Palestine, which doesn't exist, for people that you didn't care about until they massacred uh, 1,400 Israelis, 790 of which were civilians? Just a quick note. We have got a great sponsors. LifeVac, who Arthur Lee is one of the founders of, uh, is the founder of, of LifeVac. He is uh, the CEO, but he's also the inventor. He came up with a way to stop people from choking, and it's very simple. It's in so many schools around the world, not even just this country. It's offered to free schools, and we've been advertising it. But they had their 900th save. But listen to this story. It says, and what they ask people to do is if the life fact works, just write me and tell me your story. Now, they have 900 saves. You can imagine how many more they have if everyone took the time to write. But here it is. Um, he said uh, they said their son, their infant son, had been found in, a, in his crib on his back with a pool of mucus covering his airways. He was blue and unresponsive. They grabbed the life back and said, I've never seen so much mucus come out of a person's face. He then began to breathe again. He was our only he's our only son. He and was ju- and is just two years old. I can't put my thanks into words. I begin to tell you what your product means for our family. Your product saved the life of the most precious gift uh, of our baby. Thank you so much. So you bought, you've been giving this out as gifts, right? For baby gifts, Allison? Yeah, no, I'll give like it for to, showers. Yeah, and to my uh, to my friends, like for Christmas gifts when you don't know what to give someone or any holiday gift. Honestly, it's better than bringing a bottle of wine to someone's house if they're having you over. And uh, two of my friends, when they opened it, it could have been a commercial. Like, oh my god, a life fact! They were they knew right away. So thrilled. You know the the Chinese started to knock it off, mm-hmm. and we you know go uh, ignore the patent, knock it off. Thankfully, they pushed back. International lawyers cost them a bundle, but they make it here, and they've saved so many lives. And I just think that people should look at it as a fire extinguisher. You hope you never need it, but if you have a fire, you're going to need it, and you're going to be so glad you had it. And if someone's choking in your house any age, there's a, the Heimlich does not work all the time. But not even just in your house. They sell a travel one, so we actually have one in the minivan for all the kids, too. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Because that's what car. happens. You're bouncing around. You're eating in the car. Yep. That's, that makes totally sense. I got to do that. So good job, Arthur Lee. Uh, and these are some of these great stories you hear. You don't want to have this happen to you and say, I wish I listened to Brian. Brian Kilmeade Show. I'll be on the five tonight. Make sure you listen. To catch up to me on the book tour. I'm probably coming to a city near you. BrianKilmeade.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.